Bob Vetter, unveiling indigenous healing secrets. Dive into Bob Vetter's world of indigenous healing in this enlightening chat. Discover how a meeting with the last Comanche medicine man set him on a global journey to study non-Western healing practices. Explore how crisis catalyzes, excuse me, crisis catalyzes, that's a tongue twister, transformation, his experiences in Mesoamerica and his current work as a healer. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness driven ride. Welcome, and let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Bob Vetter M.A. is a cultural anthropologist and healer who combines indigenous and Western techniques to address modern problems. He studied Southern Plains tribes healing practices and co-authored Big Bow, the spiritual life and teachings of a Kiowa family. He uses various methods, including ceremony, soul retrieval, spiritual cleansing, hypnosis, and neurolinguistic programming. His work is featured in a book on traditional healers and hosts a podcast on healing and spirituality. I am so pleased to help welcome today, Mr. Bob Vetter. Thank you, April. My pleasure. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show. I'm excited to share your journey and all of the teachings that you have. So let's get started by sharing with the audience a little bit more about you. Well, I live in New York at the moment. Um, my personal journey really began, I guess, in, in my youth, where I was interested mostly in Asian cultures and felt that there was something deeply, deeply wrong in my own culture. Honestly, that was what led me to cultural anthropology in the first place, was a feeling that I didn't have the answers for the kind of life that I wanted in modern American society. So I began with an interest in Asian cultures, which eventually, through a curious twist of fate, brought me to Oklahoma, which was the home of what were originally 67 different tribes. Now it's the home of 37 federally recognized tribes of Native Americans. And it brought me along on a journey to look at indigenous ways of knowledge and ceremony and healing. Hmm. If you want, I'll tell you that part of the story. Well, it sounds like you've always been very attracted to other thoughts, ideas, cultural backgrounds, and practices when it comes to healing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what my area of interest from the beginning was the intersection of healing and spirituality, which it, it's kind of a common thing now. At the time that I was delving into it, those things didn't often go together. They were kind of two separate worlds. But today, I, I think it's fairly common for people to look at that at healing and spirituality as representing one 
common phenomenon, uh, particularly in non-Western cultures. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's starting to come up more and more. We talk about it a lot here. And it makes me think of a guest that we've had, Dr. Anna Yusum, who wrote a book on how spirituality is essential to overall well-being and health. And so it, it is definitely a piece. And, you know, what's miraculous about this day and age is that we have so much science to back it. You know, we have proof that this is a piece that can't be missed. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We're, we're seeing it scientifically, but we're also seeing it anecdotally. I mean, in countless stories of people who found themselves in some sort of a crisis and then turned to spirituality, turned to their connection with the elements, with the earth, with the creator, with everything that we consider to be sacred. Mm. Well, so tell me, what was what was it like, this first experience? Yeah, so I, I, I finished up as an undergrad uh, a course of study in cultural anthropology at a, almost a dual major in philosophy and cultural anthropology. So I, philosophy kind of looks at the ideal, you could say, and cultural anthropology looks at the real. I went, I moved from New York to Oklahoma, where I went to the University of Oklahoma. And I started out in the philosophy department, but ended up switching back to the anthropology department. And in my first semester, I needed to have a full course load in order to um, have my assistantship. So it was too late in the semester for me to enter into anthropology courses. And the, the solution to this catch 22 was for me to do ethnographic field work on whatever the topic was that I wanted to do. And since I found myself in Oklahoma, the home of 37 different tribes of Native Americans, even though I knew nothing about traditional Native American life, I decided to do my field work by looking at the healing practices of the Southern Plains people. And I had a roommate who was part Comanche, and he agreed to try to help me to find a medicine man. That's another whole story. I'll leave that part of the story out. But eventually, I came to meet an old man named Oliver Pataponi, who was the last medicine man of his people, of the Comanches in southwest wow. Oklahoma. And immediately, he was the warmest, kindest person that you could imagine. And I went back to my advisor in the department and I told him that I had met this old man and, you know, I wanted to know how to proceed. How should I do this, this field work? You know, ethnography is where you explore one culture in depth through ethnographic interviewing, through participant observation. Mm, sounds fun. Oh, it is fun. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the kind of investigation I like. I think you would love it. Um, so I met with him, with my advisor, and I told him what had happened. Then I asked him what to expect, you know, what I should do, how I should conduct these interviews. And he said, oh, well, you know, you want to know about medicine and, and all of that. And he said, you know, that's it. You should know that that is a taboo subject. And it's something that you probably will need a long time to gain the kind of rapport where he'll talk about that. So I said, well, I was kind of discouraged. And I said, well, what am I going to talk about? And he said, well, you know look into their mythology and their traditional stories and see if they'll talk about that with you. And maybe then eventually he'll talk to you about medicine. And I said, well, 
how long do you think that's going to take? And he said, I don't know, maybe six months or a year. So oh, I showed up, you know, I did my research. An interesting all- perspective, I would say, you right. know, that this is going to take forever to be able to warm up to. And you're saying this guy's the nicest person. I, and I'm so interested in being around him and his energy. And then you have, you know, your advisor saying otherwise. Yeah. Don't expect anything, anything big to happen. So I showed up that first day. This was, uh, this was late September in 1980. And I showed up and I had my, my list of questions on a sheet of paper and I was ready to just ask him all of these things. And I said something about, you know, we'll talk about traditional stories. And he thought about it for a moment. He said, you know, my wife talks, my wife's sister talks to somebody at the university about things like that. And to be honest with you, I I think that that's nothing but a bunch of fairy stories. He said, but if you want to know something about what I've been through, what I know to be true from my own experience, then I'll tell you some stories. Hmm. And he, he began with this story about how he became a medicine man. And if it's okay, April, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that story. Yes, please. So he said, um, he said, I didn't set out to be an Indian doctor. That's how he referred to himself, but I got sick. He said, I got, I went into the hospital uh, and the doctors did all kinds of tests, all kind of exploration. And at one point, the doc, the main doctor came in and he said, you know, we had, we doctors had a series of meetings over your case and we've decided that your condition is terminal and you're, you're going to die from this cancer. He said, um, we can, if you want to stay in the hospital here, we can ease your pain, but we've done everything for you that we can. And his son and his wife came in and he said, uh, you know, they gave up on me here. Maybe I should try to take care of this the way that our old folks used to. And what he was getting at is something called a vision quest by by the non-native world. He didn't he never used that term. He just said that, you know, I'll need to go and fast up on the mountain. And his wife said, you're not man enough to take it. They're going to run you off. And I, I need to kind of unpack that and explain that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because that's a statement. It is a statement. Um, so the Comanches have this belief that when you go to one of these places that I'll call a place of power, that there are spirits that live there that inhabit these places. And you're praying for something and they may or they may not give it to you, but they're going to test you before you get anything. Mm. And the test will usually involve some sort of fear, something that induces fear because they want to know how, how really committed you are to this. I'm already envisioning a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Like something that induces fear, right? And if you're up in on top of a mountain and what are the things that can really start inducing fear? You know, 
so my mind goes into the the physical aspects that we have. You know, there's the starvation, the fear of death, running uh, in into contact with animals that could kill you and will kill you if if prompted and hungry enough, right? And maybe even some spiritual turmoil. You know, if there's uh, beings up there, it's more heavily uh, heavily you know, energetically there, then that's another form of fear. Exactly. And this, this will unfold in our story. So she, she's, when she said, you're not man enough to take it, they're going to run you off. What, mm. what she meant by it was if you get scared and if you leave that place that you have committed to be there for that period of time that's set aside, whatever it is that you want, you're never going to get it as long as you live whatever it is. So he said, he, he went there. I, he said, I went to that spot and I knew about this spot because I had brought a friend of mine there who was dying some years earlier, who had gone there to get some help. And it was a spot facing Mount Scott, which is one of the largest peaks in the Wichita mountains uh, in Southwest Oklahoma. And he, he had his son drop him off. He said, my, my son dropped me off and left me at this spot. And he said, I had not, nothing with me other than a sheet to cover myself up, an eagle feather to hold on to for strength, four corn shucks or husks, and some tobacco. And he said, I went to that spot and I spent the entire day, spent the night. I asked him, did you sleep? And he said, no, I was way too scared to sleep. So four times he rolled a prayer smoke in the corn husk. And their belief is that tobacco is something sacred, something that brings our prayers up to the creator. So he said nothing happened throughout the entire night. But towards morning, he said, I could hear a rustling of leaves over toward Mount Scott. And when I looked up, he said, I could see a flickering light from off in the distance. And as it got closer and closer, I could make out the form. It looked like a human form of something that was breathing fire so that when, I, when it exhaled, I would see the fire come out of its mouth. And he, he referred to this as the visitor. And he said, it started getting closer and closer and closer to me until finally he said that visitor was right in front of me and he said i was like if you take a fish and pull a fish out on dry land the fish flops around helpless and he said i was that way i couldn't move i couldn't talk i couldn't breathe i couldn't do anything and he said the visitor shot me with the fire and that was it Everything stopped and came to a standstill until finally that visitor spoke to me in my Comanche language. And the visitor asked, what are you doing here, son? And I told him I'm sick. And the visitor said, there's nothing the matter with you. You're going to be all right. He said, but they sent me to take care of somebody who's real bad off. And with that, the visitor began to take off and leave. But he said he turned around one last time and he said, son, did you know that this whole world that we live in 
this whole world stops for just a little while at that time right before morning. And that's the time when things like me can enter into this world. And with that, the visitor took off to the west. And he never saw the visitor again. But the first thing that happened was his son came to get him later. And his son ran up to him and he said, Dad, how did you make it through the night last night? It was so cold. And he said, where I was at, it was like springtime. And when he got down from that little rise that he was on, there was a hard frost on the ground everywhere else except for that spot. Well, he never had the cancer again. And in fact, never went back to the doctors again after that. Wow. But he, he was walking down the road one day. He lived outside of a little town called Apache, Oklahoma. One day he was walking in that little town and an old Comanche woman who was a medicine woman came up to him and she said, what happened to you? And he said, nothing. And she said, no, no, no. There's something different about you. I can see something happened to you. And he didn't really want to talk to about it for whatever reason, but she pushed him again and she said, I can tell that something's changed about you. And finally, he told her the whole story that I told you. And she said, well, you know, you're good for something right now. And you might not know what it is at this moment, but you're going to find out very soon exactly what it is that you're good for. And he said, I, I started to think back to some of the things that I saw when I was a boy. Now, he was born in the late 1800s, approximately in 1895. Now, they didn't really keep records, so we really don't know when he was born exactly but he was born in the late 1800s and he was remembering back to the doctoring methods of the old men that he saw when he was a little boy. And he would watch these men a lot of times use fire. They would sometimes walk across coals. They would sometimes pick up coals from the fire and they would, they would do these practices where a number of them would sit together and they would perform these feats. They would do things that appeared to be impossible. And in looking back on it, I think it was a way of changing the beliefs of the people who were there. That if this medicine person could do something like this, maybe it's possible that they could affect healing for me if I'm a patient. So he thought about all of these things that he saw these old men do. And in the meantime, word got out in his local community about what he had been through. And people started to show up at his house to ask if he could doctor them. Mm -hmm. And he realized that since fire was what had healed him and transformed him, he said, I came to understand that fire, that sickness itself is like a fire and you've got to fight fire with fire. Mm -hmm. And so his doctoring method was to build a fire and when there was a red hot coal in it, to pick up the coal out of the fire and put it in his mouth. And that would activate his healing potential. Wow. So that he said that when he was with a patient, he said the patient would become like wet cement. That was the metaphor that he used. That when cement is wet, you can move it to the way that it's supposed to be. And then when it, when it dries, 
it'll stay in the form that you want it in. And he said, that's the way somebody's flesh would become in my hands. I could move them back to the way that they were supposed to be through this doctoring. And it was this fire that reactivated the same power that had healed me. So that story I came to think of as a metaphor for my entire life, that what brings us to crisis is what also, if we survive that crisis, what gives us the ability to be of guidance and help and assistance to someone else in their suffering. That story, mm. that central sense of understanding, I guess, that I, I've looked to ever since then, that made me want to look at what do other cultures think about this? How do other cultures have similar beliefs, similar practices, and similar ways of working with other people to alleviate human suffering? Yeah, well, that's a very profound aspect and way of looking at things, that which ails us or the crisis that is in our life and in our midst is really going to be the thing that that makes us better and better for the world. And it's it, there's so much of stepping into that fear and stepping into the unknown that can be the most profound for us. And so, Bob, this has certainly shifted you into being going in a totally different direction in your life. And how did you feel? I, I know that you talked about how you you applied this, uh, the way that you viewed life. But this story in particular, when you first heard it, heard it, how did it make you feel? Well, I can't say that I I took it as a universal when I first heard it. I thought it was an incredible story. I thought it was an incredible life that this old man had taken. And I should also tell you that that later on, um, he adopted me as a grandson, which is a, a not uncommon practice among uh, Native people in Oklahoma, in particular. That they'll they'll take somebody and make them a family member, uh, even though there's no obviously no blood relation. And in a way, that became part of my own healing, I think, because of mm -hmm. the, the wounds that I had. Sure. Um, but so so to answer your question, at first, I thought of it simply as an amazing story. I, I thought this is just incredible. Um, it was only over time when I looked at patterns of mm -hmm. healing and ceremony and spiritual principles in other societies that I said, oh my goodness, there's something universal in this. There's something that is obviously particular to his life and his culture, but on another level, it tells a story about how we as human beings are. What is it that leads us yeah. to be interested in healing in spirituality in the first place? And very often, um, very often it's a, a crisis, you know. I yeah, can it's that. because we need it. <laughs> we need it, absolutely. You know, yeah. and one after another after another was an inspirational story in these incredible elders that I was so privileged to meet and spend time with and become a part of their families. 
Well, Bob, you, you mentioned something that like a key word I feel, and that is that you noticed patterns eventually as you, you're going on through the years and the research and the learning and hearing more stories, you start to see patterns of evidence and where it then becomes you know, likely to be a universal truth, right? And the reason that I bring that up is because it, it seems to me like reflecting on the patterns throughout your life, on the lessons learned and the knowledge that is now gained can be such an essential piece to our, our growth and expansion. And I recall that when I started seeing patterns throughout my own life and you know, when I have an autoimmune disease. So when I had flare ups throughout life, when I was sick, when I wasn't and what, why, and what was going on in my life during the time. So patterns are this really key element to really understanding and learning. I, I absolutely agree. And what I found in the patterns that I looked at was belief is one of the things, you know, we, we, I mentioned, briefly about how he had been part of these these gatherings of these healers as a, a boy and as a very, very young man. And I mentioned that I thought one of the, the, the purposes of that was to expand a person's belief, the observer, to know that something, a change is possible, that healing is possible. And I should also say that healing is not always the same as curing that there can be a distinction. A person can be healed and not cured. A person can be cured and not healed. So curing has to do with a particular condition that may or may not change, whereas healing is coming to wholeness in the midst of uh, these challenges. Mm. So belief was one of the things that I found. I also found narrative to be an important part of healing, that the story about our life tells us everything that we need to know. It certainly uh, leads us to the belief, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if we can excavate through narrative, med narrative medicine is understanding what is it that led us to the condition? What are the beliefs that have structured um, the stuckness, the, the remaining within the midst of that issue and that problem, and how is it possible to transform it? So we look at emotions. There are emotions that are helpful. There are emotions that are harmful. Yeah. And I didn't mention it yet, but uh, parallel to my investigation into Native North American medicine was my interest in curanderismo in traditional Mesoamerican healing, uh, specifically from Mexico. And I became interested in that academically first and then eventually uh, studied with healers in the United States and in Mexico. And in curanderismo, we look at the whole human being, the mind, body, spirit, and emotional life of a person as being interconnected. Mm. And that emotion is one of the first things that we look at we look at what are the stuck emotions you know during covid i was i was trying to figure out a way to to describe this to my students and i i was outside one morning i had 
put in some raised beds and I was raising some vegetables and some herbs and things that, that I would use. And I was out there with a hose and I was watering my, my garden in the summer. And I was trying to think of a, a metaphor to figure out how to explain this to my students. And I, I was standing there and I took one further step forward and all of a sudden there was almost no water coming out of the hose. And I turned around behind me and I realized that that last step had put a kink in the hose. And I said, you know what? That is exactly the metaphor that I've been looking for. <laughs> that in our lives, that we have life force that flows through us. And that a lot of times the, the, the feeling of stuckness that we have is a result of unresolved emotions. Mm -hmm. And that that is what is connected with almost all of the human suffering that we look at in curanderismo. So all of these things are interconnected. Life force, ceremony. Well, I didn't get to the second part, which is how we get there. So let me let me add that. So in curanderismo, the model that we use is platica, which is the word in Spanish for a heart-to-heart -heart talk, where we try to bypass the intellect and go straight to the heart. Mm. So that's where we uncover the emotions that are stuck, the emotions that we would prefer, the story that led to where we are right now. And then the limpia, which is the spiritual cleansing that comes after it. So we creatively, I mean, there are very specific tools, uh, but then there, there is the creative use of ceremony as well to respond to the symbols that are uncovered during the platica. Um, specifically, what are we doing? We're changing the nature of our emotions. We're changing our mm -hmm. connection with the sacred. We're engaging prayer and we are manipulating symbols because symbols unlock a tremendous amount of information. Mm -hmm. And my, my clients use symbols all the time that come out sometimes accidentally in, in sentences. Well, you know, the, the Native Americans use so many symbols, symbolism throughout. I mean, even in their names and everything that they do, there's, that's really part of their culture and, and many other cultures as well. So Bob, this is fascinating. We're going to move into a commercial. And when we get back, I want to hear more about the symbols because it, it, it brings a lot of questions to mind and, and my mind starts to relate them to many other things. So stay tuned. Are you ready to take control of your ride to wellness? Rev up with Driven Living. Visit www.drivenliving.com and buckle up for a journey. Get exclusive access to our Wellness Driven Life Show guest portal where you can dive deep into the minds of our esteemed guests. Sign up for our newsletter and get insider scoops on these distinguished personalities. It's like having a backstage pass to their life-changing wisdom. But that's not all. You'll also receive a free hug. You heard me right, a free hug. An enlightening ebook from the Driven Living team. Discover the science-backed benefits of hugging yourself it's a fill up for your wellness tank. 
Because at Driven Living, we believe in fueling your journey to wellness, both physically and psychologically. So what are you waiting for? Visit www.drivenliving.com today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back here with Bob Vetter. And Bob, you have some extraordinary stories. I love hearing these stories, being able to bring this to our audience without, you know, having boots on the ground like you did, although that sounds like a much funner experience to me. <laughs> but let, let's talk a little bit about the symbolism because that's a topic that we're on. And so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about the findings that you had and the way that you utilize that with your students and with the people that you guide and mentor. Let's talk about that a little further. Yeah. So we, there are universal symbols. I mean, and, 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 you know, big symbols when I think of you asked about Native American life and in my experience, uh, birds are probably the best example because birds represent so much in terms of being able to take flight. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned the eagle earlier uh, being symbolic that of all of the animals, it, it flies the highest in the sky here in North America. Yeah. And the belief is that it almost touches the creator. So creators, a little bit of creator's power goes into that that eagle feather and that's why those feathers are so significant so there are symbols like that um in one ceremony for example uh i'm thinking of there's the use of um of a of a um a thunderbird symbol but in my work with people very often a symbol will emerge or i'll ask them to consider a symbol and one of the things that I often have somebody do is to create an altar, a personal altar where we can take the symbol that represents that person in his or her journey and place it on each of the four directions at different times in order to engage on um, the qualities of that direction. And, you know, different people give different attributions to the directions, the animals or the colors. Um, but in the particular way that I've learned, the particular Mesoamerican way, there are four guardians, one at each of the directions, and each one can help us in some different aspect of that journey. So I'll ask somebody to, through this conversation, we'll come up with a central symbol that to that person represents him or her and the journey that they're on. And then we'll will place it at each of these different positions and use that guardian as a lens of understanding of how mm. to come through it, whatever the suffering is, mm. the insight, the, the teachings, uh, whatever it is that needs to be done. I love so, that. Your, your wording as a lens to, to get through and, and seeing 
a perspective maybe through that symbol, a different type of perspective that we otherwise may not have thought of. And Bob, uh, tell me, is is this similar to when we talk about the four directions, is that something that's very similar to Eastern cultures and traditions? Well, the Tibetans use, invoke four directions and the mandalas that are used in Hinduism and Buddhism um, are, are square and they they do address the four directions um but we i mean we find the four directions as important all over and why is that that's because mm. you know we don't think of it so much in our society because we are largely time driven mm. whereas indigenous cultures are much more place driven and that's why in healing we also use sacred places you know, I mentioned the vision quest, but there's also pilgrimage. There's also going to sacred sites um, as a group in order to find this healing power. I, I wanted to add one other thing about, about symbols, if you don't mind. You had asked me about symbols, and I, I didn't want this to be too abstract. So I wanted to tell you about one central symbol that we use in the altar, and that's in the direction of the east. We address Quetzalcoatl. And he is the, he is called the feathered serpent. And I love the symbolism of this. And I think you might like it too. And That's what it used in uh, medical symbols is the serpent. And then there's the, the wings. So let me tell you about it from the ancient Mesoamerican perspective. The reason that the feathered serpent is such a powerful symbol is because as human beings, you know, what do we do? We, we, start out crawling on the ground as a baby. And so the symbol of the snake is the lowliest creature in the sense that it, it hugs its belly on the ground. Mm. It transforms into a bird. And what that represents in our life is the fact that, and here's the, the central metaphor, that the difficulties, the hardships, the traumas, all of the things in our life that are incredibly difficult for us, we could think of each one as providing us with a feather. And when we gain enough of those feathers, we're able to take flight. Hmm. And so it represents the transformation from information to knowledge to wisdom. And I, I think that metaphor is incredibly powerful in the sense that all of a sudden, we can take a perspective where all of our difficulties, all of our traumas, all of our sustos, that means spiritual fright, that all of them have a meaning and a purpose. They can bring us to wisdom. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I... I I love that we have different ways of explaining that, of thinking of it, the perspective, because it just feels so much more reassuring when we do go throughout life. A popular phrase right now is life is happening for me, not to me. And it's it's similar and said differently, right? The way that we perceive uh, the hardships because nobody gets out of life without them. And so does it make sense then to put meaning behind that? And there's a reason for, and, and really that is to evolve to a higher being. 
and uh, a higher version of ourselves and going into and moving into that wise and wisdom state. And, and it's quite lovely too, to see just the way that we evolved just during our lifetime, you know, as infants, like you talked about the snake, the lowliest level we're on the ground, it's difficult into, you know, as we, as we get older and grow and learn more and go through hardships and learn, uh, you know, we talk about when we're older, we become a sage, right? Because we've gained all those, all the wisdom from the hardships, and then we're able to teach others. Exactly. And I wanted to pick up on something that that you said a moment ago, and it, it, it was about meaning. And I think of meaning as being at the center of all of this, because what do we do in the midst of suffering? You know, we, we ask ourselves the question, well, why me? You know, why is this happening to me? And unfortunately, for a lot of people, this, the meaning that is attached to it is, I must have done something to deserve this. I must mm-hmm. be bad. And right. in my experience, a lot of times there, I, I see things that, I, I, you know, I, I work with people who tell me about unspeakable trauma in their life. And if you ask the question, why, here's the problem, you're going to get an answer. And so I never ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. It's simply a given. It's an existential dilemma to understand how we find ourselves in the situation that we have. So the empowering question is not, why did this happen to me? The empowering question is, how can I construct meaning out of this? How can I use this as a platform to my ability to be of service to someone else? And it's hard to see that when you're in the midst of the crisis, but it is something that you can come to as a result of it. So when in in the midst of it, what is there in this? What is there in this suffering that helps me? That in my becoming whole, I can be there for other people in their suffering. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I think that, you know, the servitude uh, that we have inside of us that we so desire to be able to give to others. It's that innate uh, part of our being is being of service to to others. And and what a beautiful way to be able to do that, to be able to utilize our, our hardships and the difficulties in place of service to others because of. So Bob, you have such awesome stories. Let's start and bring in some of the photos that you have. You some have some lovely photos that you've given. This is people, the community, the ones who have loved you, hold, held you along the way. And what I would like to go back and talk about just briefly is you mentioned that you were adopted into, not blood related. And I want to bring that back because it's a it's a very healing aspect. And you mentioned that before too, it, it healed you for based on some of your other traumas that you've experienced. And we all just want to be accepted and loved and brought in. And, and truly it doesn't matter whether we're, whether it's family and blood. And I think that's an important piece to bring in. 
and we are all family and connected I regardless agree. of blood. So uh, let's bring in and add to the stage some of these photos that you have here. So this lovely lady um, was LFA Horse, and she was my aunt. She was a Kiowa elder living in Oklahoma. Um, I She shared traditional stories of the Kiowa people with me. Um, she was the aunt of my adopted uncle, Richie Tarza, who was a medicine man who I, unfortunately, I didn't give you a photo of Uncle Richie, but um, he and I co-authored the book, Big Bo, The Spiritual Life and Teachings of a Kiowa Family. And this wonderful woman, LFA Horse, was his aunt. Um, and she shared with me some real significant healing stories and practices of the Kiowa people. Wow. And just a wonderful woman. Um, place. I, I put this one here because of place. And I think this is gorgeous background. Yeah, this is um this is on the east end of Long Island, uh, on the South Fork of Long Island. Um, but it's a spot that I've been going to for a long, long time because I, I felt that it has such power. It's a high spot on some dunes um, over, overlooking water in a, a wraparound spot. And not only the beauty of it, but just the feeling of being there is incredibly powerful. Well, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what is it? How do you know? when you're in one of those locations in the world that just holds so much more power and energy? Yeah. So I, that's a, a good question. You know, it, the, the Kiowas have a word, daw, daw, that has, that means spiritual power. And there, it, there are people who hold, I mean, we all have it, but there are people who hold more than others. And that's the medicine people. Mm. There are, there are objects that hold more of it. That's medicine objects. And there are places that have more of it. So, I mean, one way to know is if the spot has been used traditionally by local people or indigenous people over the course of time. So in the case of Oliver Pataponi, you know, that was the spot that he went to. There's also the feeling that you get when you're there. And what do you do in order to have that feeling? Well, you you spend a little bit of quiet time. You introspect and you just sense the feeling that you get when you're there. And this is one of those spots. I don't know whether this spot had a history of use like I described. I just know that when I go there, that I feel something incredibly powerful. So I may go there and, and leave an offering at a place like that as a way of connecting with it on an even deeper oh, level. I'll like sit that. and pray in a place like that. You know, I'll talk to I'll talk to the the spirits, to the elements, to everything that's there. And that's what I that's what I suggest that that my clients and the people that I work with, my students, you know. I send them all out to do things like that as well. Yeah. I think you're right. You don't, I mean, you just know it's, it's more of that. It is a feeling of, of knowing that it, it just feels good and you feel the energy. I mean, we're energetic beings. So I love that you brought in it's, it's people, it's things, it's 
as everything, everything is made out of energy and the vibrations and the frequencies of which they expel. Right. And so I think that that is a very good way to describe it. And I love that you brought in to just sit there for a while and, and feel it and listen and listen to your body. And I, I can think of a few different places in my life that I was very drawn to and, and I'd call them like my havens. You know, I, I wanted to be there. They drew me there. And there's been places I grew up in the mountains. So there's been places where I feel just called to express myself emotionally and just cry and allow uh, to to let go that way and be heard. And there's something so healing and magical about that when you experience it. And I love that you mentioned that you cried there because that's actually what I send people to do sometimes. Yeah. And and where when you're there, you know, in, in the, the conventional Western way of looking at things, You've left everything from the known world behind when you go there. But in an indigenous understanding, I'm with my relatives. My relatives are the plants and the animals and the air and the directions. And so mm -hmm. to go there and ex express my own vulnerability, I may need to cry there. I may need to express my desperation. I may need to just connect with what I need in that spot. And that's what I direct people to do. Sometimes it's just digging a hole and talking into Mother Earth and sending into the earth everything that you need to release. Because mm. what, is, what is poison to us is the compost for Mother Earth. Oh, that is a, that's a beautiful way to do that. I have, I've done that almost naturally through meditation where I, I, I dive deep, uh, figuratively, obviously meditation into mother earth and into the soil and into the ground. And you're talking that we can do that physically digging a hole and, and putting into that which doesn't serve us, which is harmful and hurtful. And it will take that for you and, and turn it into something useful. Exactly. That's the formula right there. Beautiful. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Bob. And let's, let's move into another photo here. This is beautiful. Yeah. So, so uh, in curanderismo, we wear the colors white and red. As you can see, and this is one of my teachers, Rita Navarrete Perez, who lives uh, in Mexico. And this photo that was taken in New Mexico with an altar in the background. And um, this was a, a ceremonial gift that I was giving to Rita when the photo was snapped. There's a lot of ceremonies and setting up you know, all of these different things that we can remind us. Again, it's going into the symbolism of things and the recognition. Exactly. And, you know, in the background, there is an altar uh, to the left that you can't see in this is a Temascal, which is a, the, the Mesoamerican version of the sweat lodge, which is where a lot of the healing takes place. 
Mm, again, it sounds to me like it goes back to, you talked about fire and heat and the sweat lodge is something that kind of invokes that, that fire within us, right? It's, 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 it's taking out that, which we no longer need. Exactly. Toxins from the body and all of the things through heat. Exactly. And, you know, I, it, it makes me also think uh, of another association culturally, uh, the Kalahari people in Africa talk about boiling energy. Mm. That boiling energy is this heat that builds up in both in the the healer and in the the patient. So mm. I, you know, it's it's both a symbol as well as uh, something to be felt within the body. Wow. This is uh, Laurencio Lopez Nunez, a dear dear friend of mine. He's a mentor or relative, uh, um, dear, dear friend. Uh, and here we are in Oaxaca, Mexico, where he lives. And this is Doña Berta. Uh, she liked to be called La Golondrina, which is a bird. Um, and she was my first mm -hmm. teacher in Corinderismo. I had this academic interest for many, many years. Um, and then I made a trip to South Texas uh, in order to uh, be there, be a part of a, a ceremony with my Cheyenne friends and family. And I had flown into San Antonio, Texas, and I was thinking, you know, this is where I was going to do some of my field work in looking at curanderismo on the United States side of the border. And I decided to try to find out if there was anybody practicing curanderismo anymore, because the 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 academic reading that I had done about it in the 80s you know, it was some years later and I was like, well, you know, let's see what's going on here. And I couldn't find anybody. I was asking around. I was reading different things. And the last day that I was going to be there, I found an obscure article about an, a cultural anthropologist who was giving a talk at a library with a curandera living in San Antonio. And it said that she worked part time in a store in downtown San Antonio. And I walked into the store. She not only was she working, but I spent the entire day with her in the store, where it was her first teaching session with me. And then my flight got canceled to go back to New York, and I ended up staying for an extra four days just to be with her day and night to learn from her. And that was that was mm. how I really began in my explorations of curanderismo with many many teachers. But it it started with. Doña Berta Valdez. Wow. And this is my uh, my dear, dear sister. And her name is Henrietta Mann. Um, and she is a Southern Cheyenne elder. She is really one of the most famous, I would say, scholars in Indian country. Uh, she has a PhD. She uh, taught for many, many years at Montana State University and then headed the development of Cheyenne and Arapaho College in Oklahoma. She's called on to speak at major events all over all over the country. Um, just an amazing, amazing person. Wow, that's amazing. And just that was a place that I was doing limpias in New Mexico. 
Now, is this uh, tied to martial arts? Because I know you mentioned during your your intake here with the Wellness Driven Life show that that is something that you've been doing your whole life. Yeah. Um, well, yes and no. Um, <laughs> the Well, the reason that I say no is culturally no. The arts that I've studied are Chinese and Filipino. And that kind of looks like a, a martial arts belt, but it's not. Uh, the purpose of the red is to protect two areas of vulnerability, which is the um, the the belly button and the forehead. But in Chinese martial arts, for example, there is the idea that that a person who heals, or I should say, a person who who harms when it's necessary should also know how to heal. Mm, so yes. In my own personal life, I've been interested in martial arts and in healing, um, but not necessarily in the same, well, partially. I, I did study medical qigong, which is connected with martial arts, but um, culturally, my exploration of Mesoamerican healing is separate from the martial arts that I studied. But it certainly does tie in. Like you it's said, not. Bob, you know, when we talk about um, martial arts and all of the things, it's the, uh, how do they say it, the warrior in the garden. So it is having both of those aspects where you're able to, to fight if need be and to do all of those things, but also like you said, to heal, to be kind, to be humble, and all of those things really tie into and circulate into these different cultural values. And a warrior is to be a warrior in service. Yes, yes. You know, we, we, we face our challenges as warriors, but we also uh, act in service to others. Uh, just a shot in New Mexico. I just love the architecture out there. I get to go there a lot. <laughs> it is neat. I mean, we could definitely go deeper into the way that people lived and how they utilized the earth for their surroundings. You know, I, I like to think of uh, the way that we 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 are given everything that we need from the earth, right? And I, I think that it's important to to contemplate that and to kind of go back into that. We're in this, this crisis uh, with food and all of the things and spiritually. And that's why we have the Wellness Driven Life Show to start bringing some of these topics into the world in order to start contemplating them and reflecting on them and thinking about how we can start doing things a little differently because now we have some different knowledge. But when we, when we talk about how we've been living on this earth for ever and that we've evolved into so many different ways and avenues and, and doing things differently because there's more people and the technology and all of the things, but yet some of the things going back to those roots uh, are are key. And when we think about the earth and, and what we're given, and let's just take food for example, but we're given everything that we need. And instead of making all this processed things and recreating, uh, which is a beautiful thing, a beautiful concept, right? We were giving these, these minds in order to create new, but at the same time, it's already there. 
Yeah, and I mean, in certainly indigenous uh, understanding of food and our relationship with food is is important as well. You know, to cut down on processed foods in our everyday life, but also to consider it something sacred, and that's why a lot of times the offerings that I leave when I go somewhere will be a food offering or mm. offering right here in my own yard to offer up food to the spirits, to my connection with everything that is. And animals may come and eat it. That's okay. The The spirit of it is taken first. Ah, that's, that's such a, a lovely way to exchange energy, you know, when we are leaving offerings and, and doing things like that. It's a beautiful way to exchange that. So we'll go through a few more pictures here. What a lovely staircase. Yeah. So that's Oaxaca, Mexico, which was, yeah, I, I mentioned that I academically studied curanderismo and I intended to do a one-year program of study in Oaxaca and then I forgot about it for many, many years. I met that gentleman, uh, Laurencio Lopez Nunez, way after my academic training and ended up in Oaxaca studying with him. And that's so Oaxaca is um, a place where traditional medicine is still very strongly practiced. Um, in, in some ways, it's kind of ground zero for uh, traditional healing practices in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a photo of two men who have been really important to me in my life. The man on the right, the lower right, is Moses Starr, and he was my adopted father. He was a Cheyenne elder, um, and he took me as a son. And he taught me more lessons than I, I could possibly ever tell you. The man in the center background is... Mike Watkins, and he uh, he is still alive. He is uh, two tribes, Caddo and Delaware. Are, uh, the Delaware are originally the inhabitants here on the East Coast in New York City, a little piece of Long Island, lower New York, New Jersey, part of Pennsylvania, who were forced uh, and relocated in Oklahoma. But these two men have been incredibly important to me in my life. Um, my dad, Moses, was a ceremonial man. Um, he was very much involved in the ceremonial ways of his people. He was a member of, of um, a particular warrior society where he was told that when it comes to the needs of our people, the word no will disappear from your vocabulary. And one of the things that he did more than any was to be there for people in the tribe when somebody in their family would die. And what he taught me, among other things, was the value of humor. And he mm -hmm. said that, that, you know, he would go to the home where a relative had died and people were, you know, deeply in mourning. And he said, sometimes you just feel like breaking down and crying right then and there. He said, but you have to remain strong for that person. And he said, that's when, that's when as hard as it may be, there are going to be times that you'll use humor to be able to help that person. And I, I really think of that as his medicine. Mm, I, I think of that 
Well, I come from a background of law enforcement. And when you see so many horrible things, your, your, you know, first responders are thrown into the worst of the worst military oftentimes. And being able to utilize humor in order to, to cope and get through that is, is, is very key, I would say, to, to get through that. Otherwise it becomes too heavy. You know, if we're, if we're not going and, and, and we don't have the knowledge or, or the understanding to go release that into the mother earth or what have you, humor is one of those things that is easily accessible to everyone. And I think everyone has a, a very good understanding of what that is and how to use it. It's powerful medicine. It is. It's powerful medicine. <laughs> so um, let's bring in a few more here. Yeah, so this is a, this is a, a lovely lady named Kata. Now, Kata comes from uh, Kata Jimenez. She lives way up in the mountains in the state of Oaxaca and comes from an indigenous group called the Mihe. And Kata has another amazing story that fits that same model that I described of Oliver Pataponi. Um, just I'll give you a very, very quick rundown of the story was that she was born with certain marks on her shoulder on her upper arm that to their people mean that you are destined to be a healer and mm. Kata turned her back on that as a young woman she wanted nothing to do with it and so she started getting sick and sicker and sicker and sicker and thought that she was near death and she she lives in an area where there is almost no cash used. You know, she whenever I visit her, the food that we eat is only things that are produced on her property. Um, she lives in I, I, every time I go there, I feel like I'm in a National Geographic magazine about <laughs> some culture that's so isolated. Um, so her parents somehow scraped up enough money, cash money to get her to the hospital that was hours away. And she went to the hospital. And again, just like the story with Oliver Pataponi, they, they did everything that they could think of. They finally said, you know, we can't do anything with you. She went home and she met with an uncle, a distant uncle who was a healer who said, you know, all of this is because you have turned your back on what you're supposed to do. And he sent her on this incredible journey. I, I, I don't have time to go into that story because I know we've been here for quite a while. But again, it's a story where when she came down from the mountain, she was healed, but she also accepted that role of being a curandera and of being a partera. So today she's a midwife for her community and a healer in her community. Uh, well, you know, it, it's certainly expressed where when we're not doing what we're meant to do in this world, life is very difficult. We have a lot of challenges because I, I believe it's our soul trying to correct the course, right? And and show us that this is this is the way. And so it's it's really cool to hear those stories, I feel. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Doña Queta, who is another medicine woman in uh, in Oaxaca, Mexico, an incredible herbalist. I, I'm not an herbalist, but I have 
tremendous respect for people who dedicate mm. their life to this connection, this deep spiritual connection with the plant world. Yes. And that's Laurencio again with us looking majestic with the red background. I was going to say, it's just a cool photo, man. <laughs> I love that. Very cool photo. And this is the one that I really wanted you to see, that the 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 older of the two boys on the left uh, is Oliver Pataponi, my Comanche grandpa. And this, this photo would have been somewhere around just after 1900. And, you know, you can see that wagon in the background, um, the cradle board that the mom, his mom is holding up is the, the baby carrier for that little infant, his brother, John, mm -hmm. um, on the ground. Wow. That's incredible. And how, how did you come across this photo, Bob? I, I stumbled upon it by accident only a few weeks ago, interestingly enough. Wow, because this is cool. I, yeah. I mean, it's very rare to come across a photo this old and and this and to attribute oh it. My to gosh. Yeah. This traditional. <laughs> yeah. So um, so it it's from the Western History Archives at the University of Oklahoma. Wow. And it was amazing to find. It. I mean, there's a lot of photos like this, but usually you don't know who it is. Right. And in this case, they they knew who it was, which was amazing. Well, I'm so glad I asked. I felt really drawn to ask you that question because, I mean, somebody could think, well, of course, your grandfather gave it to you or you, you know, passed down the line or what have you. But that's not the case. This is something no. that you found recently um, as if this is the perfect timing to be able to show it to the world uh, on this virtual platform. Very and cool. I'm grateful for that platform, April. Yes. <laughs> Bob, it has been extraordinary to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you so much. You've really opened up a lot of new thoughts for so many people here that haven't explored this beautiful culture and these different ideas and different thoughts and different ways of being and connecting. And, you know, talking about when we, when we get sick or our health is at ease or we're going through crisis in life to really start thinking about it differently and the different perspectives and seeing the patterns that have been coming up into life and what's emerging for you, utilizing symbols as something that you can come into, uh, you know, use as that different lens and, you know, to see a different perspective in things. So Bob, it's been incredible. I want to make sure everyone knows where to find you. You've had it here and we've had it displayed a few times throughout the show, www.bobvetter.com. Check out his website. And for those of you uh, listening in, tuning in, as always, our guest on the show is left in the description below. So be sure to check out what Bob's doing. Uh, definitely a, a sage, if I may say so, or, or maybe even a medicine man, if that has been passed down the line. And you certainly have been given the wisdom and the knowledge from some many, many people, as you've shown on the screen through the photos that you've been given that knowledge to be able to pass on to us and to others. So again, thank you so much for being our guest on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you, April. I, if I can offer everybody something real, just momentarily, 
I was looking at something called susto. Susto in Spanish is it it's soul loss. And when we experience certain events that can be trauma, it's not exactly uh, the same as trauma, but it can be trauma. We have an opportunity in that moment to use this as a, a way when we integrate the part of our soul that leaves when we have that, that difficulty. Mm. We can either take it as a, a chance to move up or to backslide in our spiritual growth. And I was thinking about that. I said, you know what? That's like the game shoots, shoots and ladders that we all played when we were children. <laughs> and I decided to construct a game, a board game, that is for free on my website for anybody who wants to play it either by yourself or with somebody else. But here's the interesting thing. I found out in my research that Shoots and Ladders was never originally a children's game. It was a game called Leela that was designed for Hindu monks that were trying to understand the nature of spiritual development. Wow. That in our experiences, we have these moments where, like a moment where there's like a fork in the road where we can either <laughs> elevate to a higher level or the experience might drop us down to a lower level. So anyway, I just wanted to throw it out for any of the viewers, listeners who want to try out this game with yourself or with others to look at the events in your life. Oh my and gosh. Well, I know I'm going to the way I that you describe this. Wow. That is, <laughs> that's so cool. That's fascinating. I never, never would have thought of shoots and ladders that way, but you're absolutely right. It's, you know, we all have been given the gift of choice and, you know, we have that choice in the fork in the road, whether it's going to elevate or drop back down shoots and ladders, everyone. That is so cool. And what did you call it again, Bob? The game is simply called Sustos. 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 All right. Well, that's an incredible free offer. Thank you so much, Bob. Everybody check out Sustos on www.bobbetter.com. Wonderful. Again, Bob, thank you so much for being our incredible guest on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you so much for our audience. Without you, the show wouldn't be possible. So thank you for tuning in. Be sure to leave comments. We'll get back with you. Goodbye for now. And we will see you next time.